0: Amen. Pray with me this morning. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, your son, who emptied himself and took the form of a servant and came down to this earth and died the death that we should have died and rose again on the third day so that we might know you and have relationship with you and really have right relationship with each other. And so, Lord, I pray today that you would continue to form the church that you want to form at Tallwood. We pray, Lord, that we would be faithful and obedient to you in every way. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to center our thoughts and our lives completely in the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again. And so we say, Maranatha, Lord, and we anticipate your coming, and we wait, Lord, with our hearts open and ready And, Lord, you have said to us, why do you stand staring at the skies? This same Jesus will return. And so, Lord, we want to fulfill the great commission you have given us. And today, Lord, we want Jesus Christ to reign without rival in every one of our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's been a great week. I wonder. I want to ask you to raise hands. Anybody read a psalm this week? I challenged you last week to read a psalm a day, every day for the rest of your life. So you should have read, uh, if you're staying with me, Psalm 127, Psalm 128 tomorrow. It's not too late to start. And if you miss a day, look, we're, we're not legalistic. Just make it up the next day and read the psalms and let God speak to you. And just to show you how this uh, comes to bear in our lives, uh, yesterday I read Psalm 126, verse three, which is our theme for this year, which, which simply uh, says the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. So we speak the Psalms and we sing the hymns and the spiritual songs, singing and making music in our hearts. And just a couple of weeks ago, I had the chance uh, with one of our, our couples, the Sturdivants, have... Uh, premature uh, sons who've been in NICU for a couple months now and a uh, little Jonah and Joshua and I got to hold them which is um, may, I, that may be the best thing I get to do as a pastor I don't know and I got to hold these these two little boys and just envision a bright future for them and then I looked at their parents and I said do you know Psalm 127 unless the Lord builds the house uh, it's builders labor in vain and then it goes on to say blessed is the man Uh, whose quiver is full of uh, children. And I said, suddenly with twins, your quiver gets full. And uh, God gave you two sons, and then they have an older son, Jacob. And we just rejoiced in God's goodness to them. And then, you know, we just, you know, lamented a little bit. Now they're going to have to play zone defense because you can't play man-to-man anymore when you've got three kids instead of two. And all of that, just how the psalm informs that and speaks into us the blessing that children are in our lives. And so I want to challenge you again. Read the psalms with us because one of the ways God is forming community here is through these one another. So we speak to one another and we sing to one another. We forgive one another. We restore one another, And it all comes from that first word that I spoke to you in John 13, 34 and 35, love one another. In fact, that's the most um, prevalent one another in all the New Testament. It's mentioned in several different writings, several different of the books in the New Testament say we're supposed to love one another. So how do we do that? What does love look like? And this week, I was just reminded of the insightfulness of children. They asked children about love and to define love. And these were some of their ideas. One said, when my grandmother got arthritis and she could no longer paint her toenails, uh, my grandfather does it for her all the time, even though his hands got arthritis too. That's love, he said. Another one said, when someone loves you, they, the way they say your name is different. Your name is safe in their mouths. Love is what's in the room, one of them said, with you at Christmas. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and just listen. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. That happened in our house this week. You really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it all the time because people forget and maybe this morning we've forgotten how much God loves us and our love for one another is just a wonderful reminder of that. And the apostle Paul reminds us in that great chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Let's go back there. We'll be there this week and next week. Next week we'll think about hospitality and just sharing life together. And we've got a big gathering coming up two Sunday nights from this, this day, uh, two weeks from now on Sunday night. On the 18th, we're going to gather in homes all over our city. Um, There's there's somebody who's got a house open in your zip code, and we hope you will go to that and meet your brothers and sisters in Christ who are part of Tallawood. They're probably not part of your Sunday school class. They may not be, um, you know, with you in other parts of the church, but you'll get a chance to get to know them because someday, sooner or later, we're going to need each other. So we might as well get to know each other, right? Let's stand together and read God's word together today. Uh, It's in Romans chapter 12. I'm just going to read a couple verses, but keep your Bibles open because we're going to come back to some later verses in this same chapter uh, a little bit later. And just hear the word of the Lord together today. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So what is love like? Well, Paul tells us it's sincere, it's discerning, it's self-effacing. Remember he's writing to a church that's very diverse. He's got Gentiles, he's got Jews gathered together and the divide between those groups of people was expansive. It was like the Grand Canyon between them and now in Christ they find out that God loves them both and has brought them together in one church and likely they were meeting in homes like Priscilla and Aquila's house is one of the churches where they met and so they're meeting in homes and they're sharing life together and they're discovering how different they are and they're also discovering how loved they are in Christ and that begins to melt hearts and change attitudes and they begin to care for each other and as Paul describes love in very practical ways he uses a lot of Greek words for love here the word love must be sincere is the word agape you probably know that word Um, the the unconditional love of God Uh, he uses the word Philadelphia For the city of brotherly love, love each other with a brotherly love in in verse 10. There's another word there, a family kind of love. Philostorge is a a love for family. But above it all, he says, if you're going to love each other, it needs to be sincere. Literally in the Greek, unhypocritical. So we don't want to wear masks. Imagine again, Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. So that's insincere love. That's hypocritical love. It's wearing a mask. That's what the word hypocrite means, to wear a mask. The word sincere means without wax. It's a Latin word because back when people used to sell their pottery at a market, if the pottery had a crack in it, they didn't want to lose that money and so they would melt wax into the crack and cover it over and so it looked like it was okay and it was okay until you tried to pour hot water in it and then it would break and so it was insincere. It, was, it had wax in it. Sincera means without wax. That is, you're not pretending to be something that you're not. And as he describes it, he's really talking about the community of the church. I remember John Owen years ago, um, the, the Puritan, had this thought. He said, don't pretend that you love the brethren in general and love the people of God and the saints while your love is not fervently exercised towards those who are in the same church with you. In other words, you can't say, well, I just love all the Christians in the world but not love the person who's sitting next to you. Christ will try, I think he means test your love at the last day by your deportment, your behavior in that church where you are in, wherein you are now. In other words, he measures us by the way that we treat each other, by the way that we relate to each other. And even the words for love he uses speak of the church as a family. And in fact, if I could just point out three things to you today that he says about practical love within the body, I would just say he says, when we love each other unhypocritically, we hate what is evil. We hold on to what is good and we honor one another above ourselves. Let's think about those things together because if we could put that into practice I am confident it would revolutionize our relationships at home, at school, in our neighborhoods, in our our workplaces and especially in the church. First he says hate what is evil. If you really love somebody you will hate what is evil and we think "Well, what does that mean because we think of love and hate as contradictory and uh, we talk about having a a love-hate relationship With someone or something, that word frenemy, they're my friend, but they're my enemy. I love them, but I I hate them. They get on my nerves. We use those kinds of words to describe this kind of relationship. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8 says, There is a time to love and there is a time to hate. So, how do we know what time it is? Is it time to love or is it time to hate? And what does he mean by hate? what is evil. Well, the word he uses for hate is a very strong word. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It's translated in the ESV, abhor. I I like the message which says, run for dear life from evil. That's the way we feel about evil. And as he describes hate, we we think, well, but it's never okay to, to hate. We know it's not right to hate. We've even got expressions these days where people will say, hey, don't be a hater. You don't want to be a hater. Whatever you are, don't be a hater. You know, stop drinking the hater aid. Don't, don't hate people. We should not hate people. Well, good, right. We don't hate people, but we do hate evil. So what that means is that we can separate the person from their behavior and say, where do we get an idea like that? Well, God, because he loves us, but we agree today he doesn't always love what we do. And so he hates the evil within us, but he loved us so much that he sent his only son so that he might offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins so that our relationship with him might be restored. So it's okay to hate what is evil. And as he describes evil here, I just noticed that he mentions it a number of other times here in this passage. And I think he's talking about that which is within us that hurts us. Uh, and I'll just show you some examples of it, just to show you, we're not supposed to hate people. He says in verse 14 of Romans chapter 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and don't curse. So when he says hate what is evil, he doesn't say, well, you know, your neighbor who's getting on your nerves, or your coworker who's tr- who's trying to uh, uh, leverage themselves into your job, or um, your your family member who just keeps driving you crazy. No, you're not free to hate them. You're supposed to bless those who persecute you. In verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. So some Somebody may be evil to you, but that doesn't make it okay for you to be evil to them. Again, in verse 19, he points this out and says, um, We shouldn't take revenge. We need to leave room for God's wrath. And uh, finally, in verses 20 and 21, he says, Be kind to them. Don't be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So evil is a reality in our world. And if we could think of evil as the things in our lives which are harmful to us. Some of you've seen these cancer commercials right now. MD Anderson's running a whole new group. And remember the people on there, they're either people who have cancer or their family members have, and they're talking to cancer and saying, you treat everybody the same. You're trying to destroy. You're trying to steal life. And they speak back to cancer on that. And I was thinking, We hate cancer. I've hated cancer ever since I first heard the word as a five year old when my grandmother, who lived with us in Rolla, Missouri, was diagnosed with melanoma and it began slowly to take her life away. And I've hated cancer ever since then. I hate the C word, I think it's a bad word. I don't like that word. Well, what if there are cancers in our souls? Don't we hate those as well? Something that's corrosive, acidic, that's hurting who we are. I was thinking about a friend of mine who I love greatly, and uh, he's been struggling with anger. And one of my memory verses coming up in the next couple of weeks in fighter verses in James chapter one, verse eighteen and nineteen. It says everyone uh, should be quick to listen, slow to speak slow to anger. Why? Because anger doesn't accomplish God's righteous purposes in our lives. And so I just went to my friend because God told me to, honestly, I wouldn't naturally do this, but I just went to him and I said, man, I think you're angry. And he goes, well, I'm not angry. But then the more we talked, we could tell he was angry and he realized he was angry. And, and we started talking about it. And, and I just prayed for him. And a couple weeks later, he wrote me just a note and he said, I was reading in Ephesians today and it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I've let too many suns go down on my anger. And I'm gonna release and forgive and restore. And I thought, that's God. That's God. Because that anger wasn't hurting the person he was angry. I was just hurting him. And God didn't want him. And so God will sometimes come to us and say, When you see something in somebody else's life that's hurting them, you, you speak into them and say, Hey, that's that's not good. It's not good for you. It's it's not right. And we need to hate what is evil. And I think we know what evil is. The news this week in Oregon, that, that was evil. We know that was evil. We know evil when we see it. what happened in Charleston this year uh, in a prayer meeting and people whose lives were taken. We know that's evil. We have no trouble recognizing evil when we see it. And Paul says it's OK to abhor, to loathe, to despise the evil. Why? Because the evil is sin and we should be against sin. I remember what Billy Sunday said about this. The baseball player turned evangelist who said, I'm against sin. By the way, that's the right, that's the right preposition. You want to be against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. When I'm old and fistless and footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go to glory and it goes home to perdition. Well, that's right. I mean, we ought to be against sin and we could just start with our own sin, couldn't we? We could just say, hey, I'm not gonna give myself a pass if there's something in my life that's hurting my relationship with my family, that's hurting my relationship with God. I'm gonna lay that aside. I'm gonna despise that. I'm not gonna hate myself because God loves me. So I'm not gonna hate myself, but I'm gonna hate my sin because I can't get better without turning from my sin and returning God. So he says, Hate what is evil. The second thing he says is, Hold on. Again, a very strong word, Kala'o, cling to. Literally, be glued to, cemented to, connected to, embrace. What is good? So we look at our loved ones and we see good in them and he says, hey, encourage that, hold on to that. I was thinking of of super glue when I read this this week and was just studying this word and I thought about how many times I've tried to fix something with super glue and as far as I can remember, I never once fixed anything with super glue. However, I have affixed my thumb and my index finger a number of times trying to fix something with super glue. Well, he says, glue yourself to that which is good in somebody else. So when we see good in somebody, look, the churches, you say, well, we're not saved by being good. Absolutely not. But because we've been saved, we want to do good. I think about it when I stand before a couple and and, uh, they're about to get married and and we talk about it. And I say uh, about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And I say to them, Hold high hopes for each other. Look for the good. Don't always look for the bad. Don't always critique and complain. But if you see something good, really, really encourage that. Because there are a lot of lonely people, even in our own households, who need to be encouraged who need to be lifted up. Louis Fitz, one of our members who sits back here in the earlier service, and he was telling me one, one Sunday, he said, I, I was going through Louisiana and he said, I noticed all these places and bayous like in almost every name, Bayou Lafourche and Bayou Lafitte and Bayou Senier, and all these bayous, you know, and he said, even, even in Houston, you got White's Bayou and Buffalo's Bayou and Br- Bray's Bayou and he said, I was thinking about the loneliest place in Louisiana, you know where that is? He said, it's Bayou Self. If you're Bayou Self, you are really, really lonely. Well, the apostle Paul knew what that was like because when he came out of Damascus and came back into Jerusalem, nobody would have anything to do with him. And Barnabas, what does he do? He glues himself. The book of Acts uses this word to talk often about the community in the church, that we're glued to each other. We're inextricably connected, intertwined. Our lives are intermingled. The roots go together because we're all tapped into the love of God, which is changing our lives. And so we want to share life together and we see good in somebody we want to encourage. I was reading Shelly Gable's work from UCLA this week and she was talking about how that in families if if your partner, your your husband or your wife is telling you something about their day and you just listen passively, that does not engender any positive emotion from them. But if if you listen attentively, if you give a hug, if you give a high five in a way What you're doing is engendering positive relationship from them, and they will respond to that. I thought it was a a fascinating study because I know the challenge for us is that we can sort of get wrapped up in ourselves and and our challenges, and we we think, well, you think you had a bad day. You ought to see how bad my day was, and pretty soon we got dialogues of the deaf going on. Nobody's listening. Everybody should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, connect Your lives together. You know where I saw this this week? I think one of the people I know in the world who most loves to hug is this lady, Sandy Schultz, who's the head of the Work-Faith Connection. And uh, their ministry is mostly helping people who've gotten out of prison to uh, find a job because it's pretty hard once you get out of prison to find a job and and so she's got this ministry and I spoke to a group of their graduates recently and it was just awesome the way they were embracing, giving high fives, encouraging uh, these folks. Not everybody's come out of prison. A lot of people in that just lost their job, maybe lost their home, maybe lost their car, maybe lost their family and they're just trying to get a start again and they have a special ministry. So this week Tim Keller came to town to speak to their sort of big fundraising banquet. And, uh, we went down to Joshua and I went down to Hilton Americas this week. And, and, uh, while we're there, uh, we're, we're sitting, we're at a, a great, a great table there and, um, right, you know, on the front row, which was pretty amazing. And, and, uh, Mark and Betsy Samuel were there. They're good friends with Sandy. And so we're there and there's this guy who I don't even know who's sitting next to us. And, um, uh, his name is Robert Saltzman and Robert is, is there and he compliments our uh, MC and I would say his name but I've promised to stop name dropping so I'm not going to but he's a really famous sportscaster. But anyway, so I'm sitting next to him and we're talking and Robert says, man, I wanna speak like you speak someday and he goes, man, you can do it if you just try and, and Robert, you know, and then, then I noticed, I didn't even know it but Robert's on the program and I didn't know it till he stood up to speak. And Robert says, so at the age of 17, I was sentenced to life in prison in Angola prison in Louisiana. Now he had my attention because I'm thinking life sentence, but you're here, right? And so, so you, okay, so what's that about? And he begins to tell his story and he says, you know, I, you know, you know no family, no, no strength, you know, grandmother who prayed for him, but that's all he had and struggling with that. And he ends up in prison at the age of 17. And there's a seminary program there. And he begins to study through New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary over in Louisiana. And he gets his bachelor's degree in theology. He also gets a degree in auto mechanics. And his job in the prison is to take the Lord's Supper as, a, as an inmate chaplain to the people who are on death row. That was his job. And so he does this and he's gone to school. He's got two degrees. He's done all this. And then they change the law and they say, if you were given a life sentence when you were a juvenile, you might be eligible for parole. So he comes before the parole board and they say, why did you go to school all these years? Why did you do this? And he said, well, I became a Christian and I wanted to grow and I wanted to learn. And so, and they said, but you knew you were never going to get out. And he said, yeah, but I just wanted to make the most of my life. And they said, we are very impressed with that. In fact, we're so impressed that we're going to set you free on the condition that you leave Louisiana. And he said, I was good with that. So just, you know, he left Louisiana, came to Houston, right? Just going to get a job in Houston, except nobody's going to hire a guy. I mean, the application doesn't say, how do you envision God working in your future? All it says is, what was your past like? And based on his past, he thinks... Nobody's going to hire me. And so he's struggling with this. He's living with family. And then he finds the work faith connection. And Sandy Schultz gives him a hug. And that organization gives him a hug. And they teach him. And he gets a job as a metal fabricator. And he said, you know how I know God can change people? You know how I know? Because 10 months ago, I was serving a life sentence in Angola prison. And today I'm speaking at a banquet in in front of a thousand Houston business leaders and church leaders. That's how I know God changes lives pretty convincing, right? I mean, God's transformed his life and he knows it. And it began with somebody who saw something good in him. And it's easy to always look for the bad, but what if we saw something good and we encouraged that and we glued ourselves to that and said, we're going to focus on the good. Wouldn't that be good? And the third thing that he says is not only hate what is evil and hold on to what is good, but it's kind of the three H club today, but he says, honor one another above yourselves. Literally, outdo one another in honor. So you want to exceed, go ahead. This is, look, in the great competition comparison of life where we're always about competing with other people. I read this week in Rebecca DeYoung's book about vainglory, which is one of the seven deadly sins. She's got another book about the seven deadly sins. I don't want to tell you about all of them, but but just this one, vainglory, which uh, is uh, pretty powerful, like pride, but a little bit different because you're trying to get God's glory. And, and she tells about Augustine, before he became a Christian, he said, I would have been ashamed, I would have been ashamed not to try to, to, to um, beat everybody else at everything else that I did. I would have been ashamed of that. And I thought there's a lot of people who feel that way about life. So life's about a competition and we've always got to win and and life's a zero sum. So for us to win, other people have to lose. So I was reading this week in uh, the Atlantic Magazine and somebody's done a study of the way that we see wages in our country. And this was interesting. They asked people, so would you rather make $50,000 in a wage culture where the average wage was 25,000 or would you rather make 100,000 where the average wage was 200,000. What did people say? We'd rather make 50 as long as people were making less than us. That's what the survey said. In fact, the people who fight minimum wage increase the most in our country are the people who make just a little bit more than minimum wage because they don't want anybody to catch up. In fact, one person said wealth is when you make, um, wealth is when you make more money than your wife's sister's husband. That's, that's when you're wealthy because if you don't do that it doesn't matter how much you make because you're not winning the competition. And there's just this comparison game. Remember I said, we kind of live in the land of Ur. It's not enough to be smart. We've got to be smart Ur, not rich, just rich Ur. You know, powerful, powerful Ur. I mean, we just, we got to be Ur, whatever it is. We live in the land of Ur. And God calls us away from that through the transforming power of Christ. So here's the honor competition. It's not how much honor can we get for ourselves, but how much honor can we give to others? So that's a different game, isn't it? In fact, one stewardess tells about an American Airlines flight some years ago and, and a, a soldier from Iraq, coming back from Iraq, gets on the plane and he's getting on the plane and uh, one of the people in first class says, you can have my seat, let's trade tickets and went back to coach and then everybody else said to all the other soldiers coming on, you can have my seat and suddenly the uh, first class section was all these soldiers and they were being honored and, and the stewardess had an interesting thought on that. She said, I was just proud to be on a plane. Where, where men who were honoring their country by fulfilling their responsibility um, were honored by others who wanted them. Just this honor competition, who's going to win? You know what I really saw it was in a funeral recently. Um, we've had a, a hard year with funerals, but at Lester Collins' funeral, uh, our pastor emeritus, when he died, uh, his daughter was telling the story of his life and she remembered the, the book To Kill a Mockingbird, you know that, Atticus Finch and, and uh, the trial and And uh, there comes that moment when Reverend Sykes, after the trial is over, Reverend Sykes says to Jean Louise, Scout, stand up. Your father is passing by because he had lost the trial. But all the people who appreciated what he had done were standing in his honor. Here's his daughter. And the pastor says, you stand too. And she stands in honor of her father. And then Laura Bauer said, so let's all stand in honor of my father. And the whole room stood up to honor the life of an honorable man. We're coming up on our veterans gathering and in that gathering you'll have a chance just to honor people who have honored uh, our country and honored the Lord. And I would, just, I would just encourage all of us to see the honor competition as one we only win not by receiving honor but by giving honor. This is unhypocritical love. We hate what is evil. We hold on to what is good and we honor one another above ourselves. And where would we, where would we find that, that kind of love? Where in the world? Well, think about Jesus who in heaven hated our sin but loved us and wanted us to be restored, perfectly restored to relationship with his heavenly father. So he gives up his life and he's willing to give up his honor and his glory throughout all of history so that he might come down and die on the cross for us so that we might be rightly restored to right relationship with God. But listen, not only right relationship with God, but right relationship with each other because it turns out if we're not right with each other, we're not right with God. And when God makes us right, then we get right with each other and relationships are restored and sins are forgiven. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven us and we love people because God in Christ has loved us, not because we were lovely, but because he is loving. And today I invite us to live in that kind of community as the body of Christ at Tallowwood. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the chance to serve you. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and we pray that we might not take it for granted but that we might let the work of your spirit continue to transform us into the kind of loving people who recognize honor in others and worth in others and encourage that. Lord, we see the evil in our world. Help us not to hate people but help us also not to compromise with sin. And so, Lord, in this world where There is just so much brokenness, Lord, so much brokenness. We start by hating our own sin, but we don't say that sin is okay. Lord, we despise uh, the the sin of trafficking human beings. We despise the sin of, of harming children, even and especially unborn children. We despise, Lord, those Um, those sins that would take our hearts away from you. And so we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love, Lord, don't let it happen, but seal us, glue us back to the goodness of Christ that you have placed in us and in this community. And let us encourage each other for good. This is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.